Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. I think that a membership body that becomes political is a membership body that has really lost its way, and that's something that we are determined not to do. Welcome listeners to the Misinterpreted Podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR, and I'm here with my colleague, Fletcher Senior Strategist, Mary Beth West. Hey there, Kelly, and it's just really great to be here as always. Today, we are hitting a noteworthy milestone for our new podcast as we welcome our first international guest on Misinterpreted, and this particular guest leads the world's foremost organization of public relations professionals. So it's an honor indeed to have him joining us yes. today. Yes, I'm so excited. Yeah. We'll we'll have the big introduction unveil in a moment, <laughs> but we want to frame a few core issues first. I will say that our guest's organization is a global organization celebrating mm-hmm. its 50th year and with more than 30,000 members. It's That's very, an impressive. It is. So congratulations to them. And it's growing in prominence as a world authority, not only on PR best practices, but also on ethical compliance, Mm -hmm. which reminds me, and just as a reminder to our listeners, we dedicated our second episode of Misinterpreted to the subject of ethics. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in that, please check it out. Our episode roster is growing. We're picking up Mm -hmm. steam on subscribers and downloads. If you'd like to hear more on a topic, please um, message us on LinkedIn. Ethics is a very hot topic Mm -hmm. right now. Right. Um, And I've just had the opportunity to have a very close association with our guest's organization over the past year, really thanks to his direct assistance. So I'd love to give a little bit of backstory here, Kelly, if that's okay. Yes. How did you all connect? Right. Well, um, I first indirectly met our guest via a Twitter chat early this year, hosted by a mutual colleague of ours, a woman named Ella Menti, who is a fantastic public relations thought leader based in the UK. And I do invite our listeners to follow her at Twitter handle Ella Menti, and that's E-L-L-A-M-I-N-T-Y. Shameless plug, Ella has just released a new book entitled Social Media and the Islamic State, Can Public Relations Succeed Where Conventional Diplomacy Failed? Absolutely fan, fascinating read, really. You can order it online. I'm going to order it today. Yeah, for sure. yeah. Well, and I can share my copy. I just got mine uh, shipped in in recent weeks, too. Ella hosts a weekly Twitter chat at hashtag power and influence. And I truly recommend our listeners check that out. It's each Wednesday at 8 p.m. British time, 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern. So Ella's topic that week was PR ethical compliance. And our guest today was chiming into that power and influence chat as I was chiming into it or just watching the the feed of different comments on that topic. And he was just putting forward so many compelling comments, many of them so on point with a lot of the observations about ethical problems I've been struggling with here in the U.S. just as as an observer since 2017. And so my immediate reaction after seeing one or two of his tweets was, who is this professional? Who, you know, <laughs> who is what this it, guy? Yeah, who is, you know, what is his organization? And where has this type of leadership voice been here in the U.S. that, you know, really encapsulates the sphere of all of my, you know, struggle with some of these issues in recent years? Because I, I had not had the privilege of hearing him speak before. And so when I was looking through the, the Twitter profile, I found out right away who he was. Uh, I reached out to him and he has graciously maintained dialogue and shared insights with me ever since. And I'm just profoundly grateful 
for that. Yeah, it's amazing how the power of social media, and in this case, just a simple Twitter chat right. can connect people all over the world. Absolutely. And uh, completely to that point, and my thanks to Elementi, I've uh, connected with so many people all over the world, and just like our guest today, many in the UK. As a preface, I'd like to let our listeners know as well, particularly those who haven't closely followed my journey in recent years, I've become a rather vocal proponent for public relations ethics. If you follow the hashtag PR ethics on Twitter, you'll find numerous comments from me on that subject, both solicited and unsolicited. To some people's chagrin, I mean, you have some supporters and you have some <laughs> dissidents. Not, yes, that's right, or detractors, or yeah, fill in the blank. Guilty as charged. I mean, to be clear, I'm not an ethics enthusiast from a posture of zealotry, or at least that's not my intent to come oh, across that so way. Well, you know, and, and you get a little bit of, um, you know, all kinds of comments from from that perspective when you're out there being vocal on things, because I am not perfect. And certainly I've made my share of mistakes in my career, as is well documented. But I do have strong feelings about PR being purposely misused to deceive people and drive decision making in ways that are misinformed. I mean, it's a huge problem today. Although I think a lot of it comes from non-PR people, uh, to be just from my observation, or people only posing as PR people. Separately, I think that in some very specific circles, our profession here in the U.S. is being deserved at times. And that happens whenever any leader or any organization allows untruthful information or bad faith to stand at the heart of how they operate and how they represent themselves to others. Yes, and I couldn't agree more. We are living today in an era of digital media where there is nowhere to hide when yeah. any leader or frankly anyone is exposed in corrupt behavior or is lying to their stakeholders. Right. So we do in PR have an obligation to be the voice of integrity mm -hmm. and to push our management teams and the management teams of our clients even to make decisions that pass the smell test. And like I said, it's often not the PR people who are doing bad things. It's untrained and unethical operators who are not communications professionals who nonetheless use communications tools to deceive and mislead and all of those things. Yeah, I really think the vast majority of our U.S. professionals in our business do conduct themselves right. ethically. So this is not a blanket accusation on our profession, but there can be issues. And for better or worse, it only takes a few bad apples yeah. in our business to reflect badly on all of us. That's completely accurate. Which finally brings me to our fantastic guest who is leading an organization that has made a real commitment toward changing the status quo. And I can say without question that he is the most effective and authentic leader I think I've ever seen lend such a voice of authority to ethics and professionalism issues in our field. I'm so excited to have him as well. And Thank him for giving us a few moments here to set the stage for why his comments today are so valued and much needed. Oh, no, no doubt about that. Um, listeners, please allow me to welcome our guest today, Francis Ingham, Director General of the Public Relations and Communications Association based in London, also known as PRCA. PRCA is the world's largest public relations professional body, well more than 30,000 professionals and uh, with offices in the UK, Singapore, Dubai, and with another opening in South America, which Francis can tell us about momentarily here. Francis is also chief executive of the International Communications Consultancy Organization, or ECO, 
which is the voice of public relations consultancies around the world in 66 countries and with more than 3,000 PR firms, Kelly. It's very wow. impressive. Francis and his team with uh, PRC are changing the entire conversation about PR ethics and what it means to serve as the voice of the global industry. And PRCA is making ethics and quality practice real and relevant. I'm so thrilled to have him here with us today. This will be our very first podcast that will be delivered in two parts. So today is part one. We have a lot to cover. So we decided to split this one into two episodes. Yeah, it will really be good to hear this guest's uh, input because there's just so much detail that we, we really thought that having it in two parts will help our audience be able to get their arms around all of this content. So excited to have a uh, part Part two coming out in the next week. Francis, welcome to Misinterpreted. Well, thank you very much indeed, and it's great to be with you from uh, London. Um, you know, just to pick up a couple of the comments you made already, uh, Mary Beth, you are certainly vocal, and that is a, a great <laughs> thing. We need, we need people who speak out in our industry more, uh, more and more, and Kelly, nowhere to hide. I absolutely agree. You know, you're your comments that uh, unethical practitioners have nowhere left to hide, absolutely accurate, absolutely welcome. And I agree also that the vast majority of our industry all around the world, um, it's ethical and it's professional, and it's our job to keep on raising those standards. And uh, so thank you for having me on your program today. Well, thank you. And a quick sidebar shout-out here, and I have to just mention it because the members of your team – with whom I've had the opportunity to interface and interact, they have been just an absolute dream to work with. I mean, we've got Izzy Aerosmith and Harry Gardner with the PR Cast podcast, which listeners, you have got to start downloading their their podcast on um, iTunes or Google Play, wherever you download your podcast. I had coffee with them recently in London. I was there on a trip with my family and had the chance to meet both of them in person, and they they were just terrific. And they are, they are very talented with how they <laughs> deliver um, their podcast. And I know that one of my favorite episodes, Francis, was the one that you were on. Um, I think yeah. that was episode three. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they, they do a great job. They really are. I will yeah. give you a pay rise immediately to get off the phone. So, yeah. Francis, I know there was a lot that I missed in your bio when I introduced you just now. So, please give our listeners a bit more background about your professional career path and what led you to take on the top executive post at PRCA some years ago. Um, so, I've been the director general of the PRCA for 12 years. Um, and before that, my background was in politics and in lobbying, public affairs. Um, so I left um, Oxford uh, and went to work for the Conservative Party, mm-hmm. which was then in opposition in the UK. And after that, uh, in a political campaigning sort of role. And after that, I worked for the CBI, which is the Confederation of British Industry. It's the main employer's lobbying organization, so uh, lobbying for changes to the law in a kind of pro-business, pro-enterprise way. And after that, I moved into the IPR, became a CIPR, which was at the time the main body for PR people in the UK, Um, and then into the PRCA in the main role for the last uh, 12 years, as I say. And over that time, we've changed the organization a great deal. I mean, when I um, I do have a significant experience of directly in PR as well. Um, and when I was at Oxford, I was the press officer for the Oxford Union. 
So I dealt with speakers like Henry Kissinger mm. and Kimmy Sainu Jordan and other people like that. Um, and that's my background. So I like PR. I like PR people. I mean, I understand the pressures that we're all under. Um, and I've always had this international attitude and outlook that I think has helped us in the organization grow it and look outside of the UK which I think is impressive and important. Francis, one of the things that Mary Beth has mentioned to me on many occasions is this explosive growth that PRCA has experienced under your leadership and with the team you have there in London and also with the staff and so many volunteer leaders across the globe. And full disclosure here for our listeners, Fletcher PR is a new member of PRCA, and we're tremendously excited that our full agency team are now PRCA members, and under our new agency membership, we plan to add the letters MPRCA under our names to show the affiliation, member PRCA. So, Francis, what is the secret sauce um, to PRCA success, and why so many professionals worldwide, particularly those who are um, ethics enthusiasts or heads of agencies and thought leaders, why do they flock to PRCA? Well, I mean, first of all, Kelly, um, welcome uh, to Fletcher PR uh, as one of our newest corporate members. Thank you members. very much. Great to have you on We're board. We're excited. Uh, and I look forward to working with you. Um, why have we grown? I mean, for a bit of context, um, 12 years ago, we were a really small organization, uh, four members of staff, about 120 agency members. We have lost members like Edelman and Weber and Fleischmann, um, and we were going rapidly downhill. Um, and today, as you very kindly noted, uh, we're the largest PR association in the world. Um, why? Um, well, partly hard work, uh, honestly, um, but also taking a stand on issues that matter. Um, when I took the role, I, I said to our members, many of whom were thinking of leaving, quite honestly, um, that we would always stand up for the for the industry and for its best interests. Um, and they might sometimes disagree with what we said, but that on balance, they would be happy that there was somebody uh, being a cheerleader for them. Um, and that's what we've done the whole host of areas, whether it's uh, extending social diversity or reporting gender pay gap, getting more uh, nuns back into the industry, standing up for the industry's business interests around copyright law, or probably most importantly, uh, making the case that the industry is ethical. And when people who are our members or aren't our members uh, do something unethical, being very clear about that, calling it out, and if we have to, reluctantly, rescinding their membership. Mm. So I think our growth has been because we we are seen as the legitimate, authoritative voice of the PR industry um, in the UK and increasingly internationally, and PR people want that and respect it. Um, and are happy that we are their voice. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I think respect, of course, being the key word. And Francis, as you know, our podcast is called Misinterpreted because we set out to dispel myths and misunderstandings not only about PR but about societal issues that all of us share, but they're also very central to what we do in public relations to help um, 
I guess, build better connections with diverse communities and, and try to overcome mm-hmm. obstacles of misunderstanding. I think there is a lot of misinterpretation nowadays across uh, countries, across cultural boundaries. There's so much er- us versus them, I yes. think, uh, that's predicated on little information or real knowledge. And I, I really kind of have to own up to something myself. I mean, having worked in the U.S. public relations professional community myself for about 25 years, you know, I'm a past national board member of PRSA, and that's a that's a on a footnote on that that board role that I had was many years ago. Um, I now feel that I existed for many of those years in a a bit of a United States PR bubble, truthfully, and was largely oblivious to the growth and the evolution of the profession internationally and shame on me yeah it's, we get very insular as americans sometimes yeah exactly <laughs> ugly american syndrome uh, yeah exactly exactly um and it's and yeah. so do we in london <laughs> we really do as well we, we struggle against it too we're in the same boat. okay well and, and that's good to know actually um because i mean it, it's not that i thought that u.s public relations was better by any stretch. It was just that I had very little exposure to the larger global scope of the profession because our U.S. organization just didn't serve as a window to the global PR community, much less any kind of conduit for real interaction and networking. But now, thanks to PRCA, I've had the opportunity to make terrific contacts, make genuine professional friends around the world, and I'm continuing to learn so much from their insights and wisdom. As you mentioned, PRCA started out in the UK. You're based there in London. Uh, But, you know, tell us about how your growth as a global organization began to unfold and why it matters so much for PRCA to have global reach and influence and also what you know what your observations too are about the US PR market relative to how we engage with the larger global community maybe how we need to improve well I mean, PRCA started in 1969 so we're 50 years old in November, it always had an international outlook. So when it was set up, it it, it had written into its rules that we would help establish other PR associations um, around the world. And that's why, for example, you've got uh, PRCA India and PRCA Nigeria and PRCA Ireland. Um, So it always had this international outlook and helping the industry attitude. Um, And then at some point, that died. And when I took the role over, we decided to uh, revive Mm. it. Um, So for the last seven years, we've run ECO, as you very kindly pointed out, um, 41 associations uh, operating in 66 countries and 3,000 agencies. Um, So we try and bring this ECO and PRCA, we try and bring this global network together because I genuinely believe the challenges we face are so common um, that we ought to address them together. Um, I think one of the differences between the UK and the US market is that the UK market simply isn't big enough uh, domestically to uh, accommodate the desire and the appetite and the skill that's there whereas the U.S. market is so much bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. I think that may explain why, you know, there's a slight difference in, um, in outlook. But I've always been very clear that the, the two market leaders in the world are the U.K. and the U.S. Um, in the data that we publish 
annually about the state of the market. Uh, the two closest markets by far and away are the UK and the US. But as I say, I think we have these common challenges around evaluation, around strategic comms, around proving the value of what we do, attracting the very best people into the industry, about proving that we are ethical and professional. I also think we have this common challenge, if you don't mind me saying so, we're never going to be loved hmm. as an industry. Yeah. Uh, and some people some people hunt that down <laughs> and they're never going to achieve it. Right. Um, what we need to be is, is respected, you know, and that's about proving the, the value that we deliver to organizations. And that's the, that is the area where we as practitioners leading our industry can make a difference and add value and do our industry a service. And I think that's why we, that's why we look internationally from London. We've established in Dubai and Singapore, Buenos Aires next week, and international members all around the world, including yourselves in the US. And that's a very significant development for us. So I genuinely think there is a global community out there and it needs to be um, serviced and helped. Yeah, Francis, I couldn't agree more. And what I love about what you're doing is you are starting or trying to dispel some of the myths that we fight against as PR professionals every day. And it seems like any strategic communications association in today's world can't simply focus on tools and techniques of communications and management and the tactics, so to speak. That one-dimensional model is dead, and everyone in PR today must be constantly informed. And that means cross-disciplinary and multidimensional. And from my vantage point, it seems like that dynamic framework is where PRCA is taking a lead in so many areas. Francis, your team is convening global discussions about the state of mental well-being in the PR profession. Um, Given that we are consistently ranked... among the most high-stress lines of work, my friends are very surprised when I tell them that in the U.S. we usually come in third behind firefighters and airline traffic controllers. Yeah, yeah. the and level of pressure daily. The wow. level of wow. yes, in the U.S. and I can relate to that. I can yeah. also relate to the mental stress that comes from running an agency. Oh, it's and a pressure cooker. Going for through sure. the burnout, and so I'm so excited to look into what you're talking about on the, on the state of mental well-being and the resources that you may have to offer. So we've done our own research on mental well-being. PR practitioners over here say that they are more stressed than members of the Army or the Navy. Now, that is quite well, remarkable given, you know, people are putting their lives on the line, literally. I, I think we've got a great deal of work to do here. It, what was interesting with our research was that people felt really uneasy at telling their bosses that they had a problem and asking for help. And the number of people who said they'd reported they had a problem and nothing was done was incredibly high. The same was true, actually, of a survey we did on sexual harassment in the workplace. People burying their heads in the sand, employers trying to ignore the problem and hope it would go away. And I genuinely believe in these areas, we have got to show leadership because if we don't, we're we're letting down the people who work in our industry. We're also deterring people from joining it and we're chasing people away from it. Right. So membership bodies like our own, you know, we've, we've got to step up and do something about this in the interest of people who work in the industry. And in the interest of the long, you know, the long-term interest of the industry 
as a whole. And I think that's a place where common challenges, UK, US, and everywhere else around the world probably. I think we need to be talking about it more here in the U.S. I don't hear a lot of conversation around that. So PRCA is also leading conversations on important areas like AI, digital media, profitability, which is always a big one um, for in the agency business, creativity, public affairs, and the list goes on and on. Yeah, and I, I've been very impressed by that. And Francis, you may want to speak to just the, that breadth of topics. Well, you know what, can I talk about the public affairs bit? Would please that be okay? do, please do. We've had a bit of a story today. A few days ago, one of our, the, the main newspaper for London, the Evening Standard, carried an exclusive, the Ruth Davidson, who I'm sure none of your listeners have heard of, but she's the most senior conservative politician in Scotland, had taken a job with a lobbying public affairs company. Um, we spoke out against it uh, as unethical conflict of interest and so on. We had a bit of a, uh, there's been a, a lot of media coverage over the last couple of days. And earlier on today, she announced that in response to the public and industry criticism of that decision, she wouldn't be taking the role. Wow. And why, why, well, yeah, why we opposed it, it's, it's like a, a congressman saying he's going to work uh, two days a uh, two days a month directly for a lobbying company. <laughs> right. uh, to, I am bold over that someone would think that that's appropriate, and it's just it shocks me the extent to which people can't see beyond their own self interest. Or I, I, I'm just absolutely flabbergasted. Well, you, you are right, and so were we. I mean, this sort of thing happened 20 years ago, uh, but it hasn't happened for the last 20 years. Mm. So, so we led the industry criticism of, of this, um, and there was a Twitter chat only last night with her employers and me on, in opposite sides of the debate. And my final tweet of the evening was, Ruth Davidson, uh, Ruth Davidson uh, being her name, shouldn't take this job. And today that she's announced that given public opposition, she won't be taking the job. Now, this is great because it, it shows the power, uh, the legitimate power of membership bodies if they use it correctly and with discernment. Um, but also the fantastic thing was the industry as a whole rolled in behind us mm-hmm. and said, this is wrong, don't do it. And so we've, what we've got is um, an industry body setting standards and people coalescing around those standards. And I think it's a great example of what industry bodies can do if they have ambition and determination and speak out. Right. Well, and I think that what you have embodied in this is a nonpartisan approach to it because you're applying the your, the ethical rules regardless of what party or regardless of what political leaning an individual or an organization is. Um, and, and that's very clear that you all are, are bipartisan or nonpartisan, I should say, in your approach. Well, um, I'm glad you raised that because um, as it happens, um, so Ruth Davidson is an elected politician for the Conservative Party. Um, I used to work for the Conservative Party. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still a member of the Conservative Party. So the fact that we were so vocal in saying that she had done the wrong thing, despite the fact everyone knows I'm a member of her party, is important because you've got to 
call people out where things go wrong, regardless of personal links yeah. or political or political um, leaning. Right. Well, and yeah, as Kelly mentioned, here in the U.S., our U.S.-based association has really ratcheted up quite a litany of criticisms within the political sphere and charge, you know, charges of, of ethical violations and things like that. The only problem is every single one of them have been directed only to one side of the aisle. There has never been criticism of the opposite side of the aisle. And the pol- the politicization, unfortunately, of the organization has become very divisive for the organization itself. And um, I actually uh, proposed a bylaw amendment uh, to the U.S. Association bylaws stipulating that the organization should be nonpartisan and leadership successfully were able to defeat that proposal under the auspices that they said, well, we're already nonpartisan. We really don't need any bylaw around it. And we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. And unfortunately, we're, we keep marching down this this pathway here in the U.S. And it's again, it's creating this divisiveness that's very unfortunate and unnecessary and it's all because you know the the agenda is so cl- so clear and i and, and i feel like our intelligence is being insulted when we're told that oh this is all nonpartisan but the track record says something completely different let, let me let me uh, frame my words carefully cuz i you know i've no desire to intrude in your politics at all um but i think it's vital that membership bodies are not political. Mm. We deliberately do not take a political stance one way or another. It doesn't matter the political preferences of the people running the PRCA at all. We just speak up for the industry. We call out things when they're wrong. We praise things when they're right. And I think that a membership body that becomes political mm-hmm. is a membership body that has really lost its way, and that's something that we are determined not to do. If I can just also look at the one of the topics you mentioned just a moment ago regarding diversity in the PR workforce, I've been very impressed by how... Um, PRCA is really engaging in this topic of talent development for the global industry. PRCA directly handles PR apprenticeships. And from what I gather, you place about 80% of your apprentices into permanent employment. Um, you're yeah. also, yeah, you're also seeking to integrate diversity and inclusion efforts alongside that apprenticeship program to help impact tangible DNI workforce outcomes for companies. I, I thought that that was very, that's that's a very impactful and relevant thing. Well, you, you know, the, the the key thing that my members say, um, their number one issue is talent, uh, recruiting talent, retaining talent. Uh, at every level through the industry. And they're also very aware um, that they need to have a broader pool of people who understand the people that they are communicating with and selling to. So so they want to get, particularly entry-level, a much more diverse range of people uh, coming into their doors. We've run the apprenticeship program on behalf of the UK government uh, for quite a long time now. Uh, apprentices are people who don't have a degree, so that they haven't been to uh, university. Um, and what we, uh, how we help them is we train them up at the same time as they're in full-time employment. So uh, they're learning and they're earning, 
and it's brought people into the industry who would never have considered entering it before, and that's good for, for all of us. And as you say, 80% of the people that we place in this program get a full-time permanent mm-hmm. job at the end of it. At our 50th anniversary party on the 5th of November, which is coming up, we'll announce a, a big program to reach out into uh, schools, so kids who are under the age of 18, predominantly 16 to 18-year-olds, telling them about PR as a career and helping to get more diverse range of people with their different talents into the industry because that's what the industry is calling out for. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, so. and, and that's very tangible. It goes beyond the lip service that is really so prevalent, I think, in the industry about simply talking about DNI as a as a as a value proposition and really doing something that's action oriented. And speaking of action oriented, I also wanted to mention, I was very impressed by this, that the UK government in recent weeks um, has enlisted PRCA uh, to facilitate Brexit preparations for the public relations professional community, which incidentally, I thought that that says a lot about the government's um, sense of uh, credibility for PRCA and and the trust that they have in your team. It's very impressive. Well, thank you. I mean, the most divisive issue in the UK at the moment um, is Brexit. We've got a country where 52% of people voted to leave, 48% of people voted to remain, and the parliament where the great majority of MPs uh, want mm. to stay and wrestling some very difficult issues. And our own industry, we, we polled them ahead of the vote, 80% wanted to remain. So we have a very clear uh, direction of travel of preference within our industry. And it goes back to what I said a few minutes ago. There is a very clear majority for Remain, but our job as a membership body is not to be political or to take sides. It's to be practical, pragmatic, and principled. So uh, when the government came to us and said, will you help us communicate to your industry what Brexit means? Um, Of course, we said yes, and we're communicating that because it is a a fact of life, uh, regardless of what our individual members uh, might think. And it's, again, one of those areas where, as a professional body representing the whole of the industry, you've got to work in the interest of the whole of the industry and not take a particular point of view. This concludes part one of our interview with Francis Ingham of PRCA. Uh, follow PRCA at Twitter handle PRCA underscore UK. You can also follow Francis Ingham on Twitter at Ingers1975, and that's I-N-G-E-R-S-1975. We will be picking up with part two of our interview with Francis next week, so be sure to tune in where we will be focusing more on the Bell Pottinger case study. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted public relations demystified you can keep up with the latest on the podcast at fletchermarketingpr.com and on itunes spotify google play or wherever you listen to podcasts we'll see you next time 